Hello, my name is Jay Khadija Abdurakman, and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 17th, 2021. It's 8.42 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Alain Mandel. What's good, Alain? Hey, Khadija. My name is Ilan. I'm a PhD student at Cornell Tech. I use he, him pronouns, and I am doing very well tonight. Oh, yeah, I use she, her pronouns. And by the way, we'll stop introducing ourselves when you guys um, start sending us more letters at webeimagining.gmail.com. <laughs> we want to read them and stuff. Uh, but shout out to our new patrons on the Patreon. We appreciate y'all because uh, we have a couple, couple of episodes on cue. And if we get some more editing capacity beyond myself, we can definitely start releasing episodes more quickly. But today, I'm, I'm really happy that I have my friend Trisha Wong. Um, who is a digital ethnographer, and I originally met her at Data and Society. Exact, I think it's exactly a year ago. Oh my God, it could have been. <laughs> when she was presenting a piece on Wuhan and hyperlocal networks through social media. So if you could say a little bit more about yourself, Trisha, and also kind of break down your little public service announcement that you just gave me about your last name. <laughs> well, yeah, right before we started, um, I was like, my name, my last name, by the way, is pronounced Wong, not Wang. And I know you both were surprised, like, huh, that's interesting. As if like, I may have been the first person, right, who told you that. And so I'm here to make a public service announcement that every Wang you've ever met in your life is actually a Wong. And this really started because, you know, why is this mispronounced so frequently? It's because most Asians early on did not correct white people from pronouncing their you know name last name correctly. So now it's just spread, you know. And so I'm here on a, uh, on every time I just say this is how you pronounce it, and now you know. And how how uh, apropos for a day where you know we have had so many deaths of Asian people. Um, to, it's never too late to learn a little bit of history. Well, thank you. Um, no, for sure. So it's uh, it's a heavy time right now, and I'm just thinking of my friend mm. uh, Tally Goff. She was tweeting that you know the endless cycle is that suddenly suddenly we remember again anti Asian violence mm. as if like the first immigration act wasn't the Chinese exclusion act as if this wasn't like part and parcel of the American empire, and then we just forget again and remember again. Um, I think part of that forgetting also is Asian people. I mean, we're complicit in that forgetting because sometimes we buy into, especially for Chinese people, um, you know, who are raised to be middle class or upper class. We are raised to be white aligned and we're raised to actually forget about that history of oppression. And um, I think, you know, so for many people, this is like such a shock, you know, that like, oh, my God, now we don't have the privilege of being invisible or being white aligned, that we're being targeted also. But I honestly felt today, I was just like, I don't know if it was like, I wasn't in total shock, but I was just kind of like, well, after all the decades of organizing with like Muslim communities and black communities where they have been the target, um, I just feel like, well, now we're added to it, but this is a time for like great solidarity building. And we have to do this because there's so many, um, you know, white supremacy groups are doing everything to divide Asian people and to perpetuate that. Like, this is just one isolated incident. It's really black crime, black on Asians, you know, that we have to be worried about. And that is not the case at all. This is a hate crime. <laughs> um, and we have to be clear what the actual problem is and to not give in to um you know, and not, not given to things that are going to divide us, you know, we're stronger together. 
Well, exactly. And also, I was just thinking about in reflecting on this one year that has passed since you, we should say in BuzzFeed News, the opinion, you can learn something from the people of Wuhan and talking about media has focused on the top-down authoritarian response in Wuhan, but the way ordinary citizens handle the crisis should be replicated across the world. And just, it feels so long ago, but I remember when the masks were so highly debated and it was thought that this was something that Asian people do, that it was almost like anti-American to wear a mask. And I saw somebody else, um, I feel like my whole, my only social life now exists on Twitter. So I saw somebody else on Twitter talking about how post-SARS masks became racialized. And there's like this idea that like Chinese people are like, overly sanitizing with the mask, but then also are like not not as hygienic. So then required the mask. And now we all realize that like just America is trash and so many deaths could have been avoided if we just implemented measures that were proven effective, um, not only in Asia, but like vast swaths of the world, instead of having 45 talk about it's the Wuhan virus and seek to uh, blame an entire population of people for it. Yeah, that's ended and contributed to much of, you know, the racism um, and the the hate that Asians are experiencing today in the U.S. So it is it's crazy, yeah, that it's been a year, and that was I think the start of it, you know. And it couldn't have been farther from reality because when when the when the pandemic started in January in in China, I had known about it ahead of everyone because I used to live in Wuhan and I had a research center there. Um, you know, I used to live in China. I've been living in China on and off for the last few decades. That's my job as an ethnographer. So as a tech ethnographer, which means ethnography is a study of people and which means that most of us are ethnographers and we just don't know it. Um, But, you know, I studied it and then um, I realized I love watching what people do with technology and I couldn't have imagined like just a crazier place to go, you know, study it than China. So I made my research based Wuhan and nobody knew about Wuhan until after, you know, March. But I started doing digital ethnography back in January, and I was really upset in starting around February, March, when it started to come out. It was really March that, like, you saw all these newspaper articles, like New York Times pieces about, like, look at China building these hospitals so quickly, you know, like trying to, like, lock people down. And it just was like this really negative um, framing of like h- how what a terrible authoritarian communist government and I was just like well look, that's so far from my experience of what I was hearing from people um, I mean it, it was much more complicated and nuanced than that and what I realized was like the reason why the virus was got under control when we think about it it took forever for Wuhan early on it's like oh my god it took them like two months but it's like look, look at us a year later we still can't get it under control in the U.S. but you know the way it it, it actually um got it they were able to control it was not just through top-down measures you know as much as that was a, a played a big significant part they were able to mobilize their logistics quickly but it was because humans human beings came together and they built human infrastructure and they created extremely hyper-local organizing down to the, you know, apartment block. And they created, they they were forced, their, their entire, you know, what I, I you know, something I'm studying right now is, is since this whole pandemic, I think what's happening right now is we're living in um, a, a moment of spatial collapse. And that's when your a spatial collapse is when your whole entire mental model of space just collapses onto itself. And it's historic, um, you know, and right now what I think has happened is that like you saw this in Wuhan and it's rippled all around the world 
where first space, you know, our typical mental model is first space is home, second space is work, our third space is everything outside of that, which is like public life where you go build community where you're anonymous, like so places like bars and movie theaters and dance clubs, libraries, parks, those are all third spaces, right? And all of that has collapsed into one space. Like the place where I'm standing right now in Brooklyn talking to you is where I do my first life. It's home. It's where I do my second life work. And it's where I socialize too. It's like I have built so many friendships and maintained so many friendships through standing literally in the same freaking spot. So I, I think that's a spatial collapse. But like what China went through, how, you know, new forms of stuff always comes out of spatial collapses. And what I witnessed in China was what I started to observe, like, well, I think there's a new form of hyper, you know, hyper locality that's happening, that people are attempting to respatialize their experience of the world. So it's not just only being lived. It's like, it's like, um, it's reanimating the spaces. So you're breaking the model, the old binary of like, you're either offline or you're online. And it's like, that's what I saw people doing was organizing using WeChat groups, you know, strangers meeting strangers for the first time and just literally helping each other get by. Um, an entire apartment building would be on a WeChat group. And that's how they manage, like getting groceries. And they started to do group buying of like fish and trying to figure out resources and toilet paper, people helping each other find beds, you know. Um, and they were just strangers from for many people because people were disconnected from their families and friends. And they had to learn how to rely on each other. And where it was like life or death, whether you could be in a hyper-local group to figure out your resources. And I remember the thing that stood out to me so much when I heard this at Data and Society in March was just that it felt so practical. It was in a moment where I think that it was just like a haze of apocalypse <sighs> and no one knew. You know, like that was still at the point where everybody was instructed to wear gloves and yeah. people were disinfecting their mail. You know, like we didn't know how the virus transmitted. And I know for me having kids, I'm like, don't go near anyone. Don't touch anything. You know, it was just like a sense of panic. And this just felt so practical. Um, and on one level, like everybody's on whatever, WhatsApp, Signal, people are communicating. But I feel like that you captured that there was something so different and so particular about what you observed um, in Wuhan. What, what Am I pronouncing it correctly? Is it Xiaoqi? Xiaoqi? Xiaoqi. Xiaoqi. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good <you> enough. Xiaoqi. <laughs> I'm not, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to You're not going to try. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Not while we recorded. Not while we recorded. I should have practiced before we had that episode. Um, but could you say a little bit more about those groups, how they formed and kind of what, because I also think that like everybody is technologists too. And so that's what I really appreciated that it's not just top-down measures, but it's how people negotiated with the WeChat. Just yeah. to add on to that question real quick, also, could you just talk a little bit about the process of doing remote ethnography, right? You were here while, while you were writing about this. Yeah, so um, I will tackle the first question of remote ethnography because that will address what WeChat is. So WeChat is a app that is almost like a combination of every single app that you ever use in your life. And it's all in one place. So imagine banking, imagine Facebook, Twitter, um, Twitch, all of it is in one place. And that is WeChat and like life insurance, you know? Um, and so WeChat is a super app, but one of the biggest features is messaging. And so this is how I stay in touch with people in China is through WeChat. Like you either, you know, you either have a connection to China through WeChat or you literally are just cut off from that country and cut off from everybody, you know, and what makes it, what's also great is that everything, everyone is in one place. 
And so whenever I need to study something in China, if I'm not there physically, I'm able to remotely, you know, digitally study it. So as as an ethnographer, I can, you know, do interviews, I can watch what people are posting and writing about. Um, So I remember for the two months I was traveling between where I used to live pre-pandemic, which is in Peru. And then I was like in Seattle, Boston and Florida. And the entire time I was like arranging for interviews and like, watching what people are posting, writing to them and be like, hey, can you also talk tonight? Can I talk to you my morning, your night, you know, with a 12 hour time difference. And I was like literally doing this in between planes. I was flying around because I used to be on the road like 70% of the time. And people thought I was crazy. They're like, what are you doing? It's just, you know, are you interviewing people talking about COVID? You know, it's this weird thing. Back then it was even called COVID. It was called like, I I think it was called the Wuhan virus or, you know, coronavirus. I can't remember. Um, But people really didn't think it was going to be a big deal. And I was like, this is going to cripple not only us, but the entire world, because we think it's just a China thing because we have in the West this imagination of whatever happens in China stays in China, Um, whether it's like innovation or whether things like viruses, you know, Um, we don't acknowledge what that that we are actually truly a globally interdependent world and that China is, you know, a big part of this global hub. And I was just like, we are fucked. And so I need to understand how people are dealing with things there because people are survivors. And so that's what I was doing with digital ethnography. I was calling and interviewing and just writing to people. And what I noticed was that what I found out one thing when I asked people like, how did you get that information? How did you find out that that hospital had extra hospital, you know, extra bed? Or how did you know to, you know, I'd ask them like, oh, as an ethnographer, you're just there to observe life. You're not there. You have to be really careful with the agenda. Even if I want to like say study, you know, X thing, I have to like be very careful to not say only study that one thing because as an ethnographer, you're there to discover the unknown. I mean, you're doing very always discovery. You're not doing just only optimization research. Like, you know, um, you have to really be open to like things that your participants are experiencing. And so I would just ask people like, you know, what did you do today? And they'd be like, oh, I bought fish. And I'd be like, well, how did you get that fish? You couldn't leave your home. And they're like, oh, I just like did a group buy. I'm like, what? It's a group buy. And they're like, oh, you just like, I just bought fish with like a hundred other people. And this like vendor dropped off the fish at our apartment. I'm like, what? A hundred other people? Who are those a hundred people? And they'd be like, oh, I don't know. I've never met them, but we're in this group together. And it's for our Xiaochu. So our Xiaochu is in China. Every block is organized into, um, because there's like humongous high rises. And if, if you've never been in China, you're going to, if you think that New York city has a lot of high rises, if you go there, it's just like high rises for miles, you know, into the horizon. And so all of these blocks are organized in such a way where it's like, you know, um, a couple hundred to 500 to thousand people are in a Xiaochu. And, um, usually there are that that system was already there pre-pandemic so there's usually a head of a shaochu there's these all these people volunteer um and they work with the local police they work with the government they kind of manage social life you know and make sure that like just life is working there but most people before the pandemic didn't like most people just did not care for their shaochu i would say like it's run by like aunties and older people you know kind of like the neighborhood block you know imagine like the people who kind of oversee it but like a couple hundred people at a time most people did not know who their shaochu was like you would just go on with your life you move an apartment but you would like you know go in an hour you know bus or cab ride to go see your family across the town because traffic is always terrible in most chinese cities even though it'd be like five minutes without traffic 
But when the lockdown happened, people's lives were reduced to just a xiaochui, literally just like the people in your building or across your block. And most of those people never knew any of who those people were. But because these xiaochuis already existed and because there was a prior group of that they were all organized on a WeChat. So you move into a building, you'll be added to the xiaochui WeChat group. But most people didn't, you know, didn't care for it. But once the lockdown happened, the Xiaochu became the entire central organizing feature of life or death, whether you could get food or not. So whether it was like getting fish or access to noodles or groceries, um, access to like also mental health advice on like what to do, how to exercise, like they were passing on recipes, you know, parents would also form subgroups out of their shout trees or like just a parent group. Um, there was just so many groups that were subgroups that were formed out of it. It was like a live Reddit um, that just kept like dividing and dividing into other subreddits. And so that's what I, I found out was that like life was now in the shout tree and it was all these strangers, anonymous mostly, who were just helping each other and figuring out life. I, I love this story. And I remember after the, the event, you put on a Reddit and asked me to be a moderator. And I have never even used Reddit before. And I saw that like not, there wasn't a lot of activity there. On the flip side, I know that you are personally part of, um, you know, I think on WhatsApp or Signal, you know, like uh, other smaller hyperlocal groups in New York. Do you feel like this has caught on? Well, yeah, I think like, so when we talked at Data and Society, what I had organized was like a hyperlocal template, you know, like this is how you start your own hyperlocal group. Here's different forms of hyperlocal groups. And I started mine um, called the Brooklyn Local Peeps Group. And I had already just known a lot of people. So I added those who I knew, but I put this template out there and I told people to start their own hyperlocal groups with very specific instructions. And actually they've been started. I've get notes from all over the country where someone's like, I started my own hyperlocal group. I know Baratunde Thurston started one in Los Angeles in his neighborhood group in Highland Park. Um, you know, somebody else started one in like Mission um, District for San Francisco. And also just a lot of people started it naturally, like organically. They, they didn't talk to me, but like there was already, you know, prior to this is a whole history of mutual aid organizing. And those always all start hyper locally. Um, and I think that a lot of our modern, you know, big nonprofits or like large, you know, organizations that help people who are marginalized actually started from mutual aid societies, mutual aid groups before they became this, you know, big nonprofit. And you also see this with all the rich mutual aid groups that started. It, it was it. I think it's caught on not because I think of me or because of China, but because people just organically know that in times, you know, when everything else is shut down, when infrastructures collapse, when technology stops working, when health systems collapse, when the government infrastructure collapses, you remember, you look around, you're like, well, actually, we have to believe that human infrastructure is what's going to save us. You know, our, our life depends on our abilities to come together. And that's why it's incredible to see, um, you know, I know uh, Devin Balkine runs uh, mutual aid groups of New York City, where he, that's all he does is he's gathered all the mutual aid, um, a list of mutual aid groups. And I think that that kind of works is incredible to see. And you see this all around the country. And I'm just curious, you know, I saw you writing about you live both through SARS and H1N1. And on one level, there was a, such a significantly higher mortality rate. But I just feel like, I mean, SARS, I guess SARS-CoV-1 lasted until from 2002 until 2004. But I feel like the intensity of it came was like more episodic and was like more quickly contained. And then H1N1 um 
I think had a much bigger impact than I that I, I see now than I realized at the time, but it still didn't have this kind of global like hyper presence in our lives. Do you feel like in Mar- like a year looking back a year ago, did you realize like kind of the the depth and the length to which um, COVID nineteen was going to to take? I don't think that I could have realized it because I don't think I I could have um, conceived of how ill prepared and also backwards that certain government leaders could be. There was no way that I was prepared to think there are that government leaders. I knew that it was bad. You know, we know 45 was bad, but I didn't know that they would actually work against, um, they would actually be okay with people, so many people dying. And in particular, um, I think that because this hasn't been framed as an occupational pandemic, that there has just been a total lack of care for the for the type of people dying. And they happen to be essential workers. They happen to be black and brown. So there's no way I could have conceived that because I just couldn't conceive the magnitude of an, an epness, you know, and leadership and the unwillingness to look at science. And I think this is many structural, like there are many infrastructural issues that led to this point is we don't have scientists of color. You know, someone who's on our advisory board for the nonprofit that I accidentally co-founded with Bitsy Ben called Last Mile, where we were giving out PPE um, in New York City and expanded to, you know, 11 other locales, like in San Diego, New Orleans and tribal, you know, nations, is that we um, we did that because we thought it was temporary. We're like, the government is going to step in with their stockpile, you know, and then they're going to give out PPE and then we'll just, we'll shut down like in a month, right? Like, yeah, we'll be done. We started in March, we'll be gone in June and we'll like come back to our lives. And it's just like every time we thought we were going to be done, every time the government would get itself together, it just didn't happen. And then we were like, okay, sure. Surely in June, they're the government's, you know, leaders of the world who, you know, WHO and like CDC, they're going to say that this is an airborne virus and properly educate people about why an airborne virus would hurt essential workers the most. To this day, we still don't have that wording. We do not have the proper messaging to explain to people this is an occupational pandemic. That means essential workers who are keeping our world going happen to be mostly uh, lower income. It is um, a lot of unskilled labor. And it's usually black and brown and indigenous people. And so they're the ones who are dying. It's not just like everybody is dying or anybody is dying. There are specific people who are dying way more. One out of about 500 um, uh, black people and Asian Pacific Islanders and indigenous people have died. That number is crazy where it's like one in like a couple thousand for Asians, you know? So that's just like to give you a sense of a comparison, the magnitude. And so, no, there's no way I could have imagined it. One in a thousand for Asians, you mean in, in, in Asia? In the U.S., in the U.S. Oh, Okay. No, yeah. sorry. I think you were saying one in 500 for, for black indigenous and, uh, I'll give Asian. you the exact number right now. It is one in, th- on, according to APM research, it's actually one in 390 indigenous Americans have died. One in 555 black Americans have died. One in 565 Pacific Islander Americans. And for white people, it's 106, one out of one, 665. And Asian Americans is one out of 1,040. Those numbers are so crazy. The gap. <laughs> And we're not willing, we're still not talking about why that gap is so big. And it's because we're not talking about that this is an occupational pandemic. And without talking about that the virus is spread over the air, um, we're never going to get to that. So we had to start COVID straight talk, which is, you know, a public health campaign um, talking about air safety funded by Sloan Foundation. And so all of these things, like I did not expect that we would be the group amongst many other groups, grassroots efforts who are tackling this from their angle, like long haul COVID organizing. These are all things that we thought the government and 
and our health systems would eventually come back and like somebody would be sane enough to say this is the issue but we still don't have it and part of it is i don't think like we have all the science in the world this is not for a lack of science we don't have a lack of knowledge of how it spreads is that we have a lack of connecting it to how this virus actually impacts the lived lives of people who are keeping our world going and that's mostly essential workers yeah, I mean, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit because when I'm thinking about this reflection over the past year and part of it is one thinking about like tech labor organizing and and also what are the limitations of science? I mean, I think on one level, like as far as like from a virology perspective, we have a lot of information about like how SARS-CoV-2 operates. But I think that like like Elon and I always talk about the inspiration for this podcast was TWIV, This Week in Virology. Um, and that was actually how we ended up uh, getting the equipment for the podcast, because that's when I started hearing that there was this outbreak in Wuhan. And I'm like, yo, we got to go get the equipment wow. before the stores close down. Um, but on the we other also hand, long range radios. Could you, huh? you were on top of it. <laughs> the long range radio is so funny. Yeah, I got a long range radio, too. Um, but the, on the on the flip side, you know, because, well, they are not like they are all white who host TWIV. I think that they were also unprepared to understand how like public health is not just mediated by, you know, quote unquote, the science. Like there's all this like structural you know, right. infrastructure and like social inequality values that are like embedded into like how we consider the science, what is successful, how do vaccines and research get disseminated. Um and so I would, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about COVID straight talk and this, like, what does it mean if, you know, if we're calling it an occupational pandemic, what does that mean for like worker organizing as it relates to indoor ventilation and the work that you guys are doing? Yeah. So COVID straight talk is a website and it's in Spanish and English. So hablando claro COVID um, in, in Spanish and what it is, it's, it's one part, it's a public education campaign that actually just tells people for, especially with the focus on employers and employees, this is what it means to have a virus that's airborne. Here are hacks that you can do. So our whole call to action is get mad. M for mask, A for air, and D for distance. Those are the only three things you need to know. And if you can just do those three things in all of your aspects of your life, in all spaces, in particular your workspace, you're going to have a really good chance of decreasing the risks of COVID. The most, um, the occupation that is most likely to die are actually line workers um, in the kitchen, line staff. Why? Because kitchens are very closed spaces are not well ventilated. And this is why we need to encourage employers like you have to open your windows, open your doors, bring in fans, do everything possible. Even if you don't redo your HVAC system, just bring in a bunch of fans and keep the air going on top of masking and distancing. That's one end. And we're focusing. But that's that's one thing just to create the content. The real work is actually getting the content into the outreach so that it actually reaches organizations on the ground and they can interpret the messaging from their own perspective from in ways that make sense for them. And this is why we have a whole hyper local organizing model where everything we do is working with hyperlocal orgs. Um, so we have, you know, Amy Amaleri, who heads the San Diego uh, Last Mile chapter. We have Danae Butler, who's heads up our NOLA uh, New Orleans chapter. And then we work with a bunch of organizations like the one, you know, you introduced me the Harlem Health Action Project with Padmore John. And where he serves, you know, hundreds of thousands of Harlem residents 
through the Health Action Center um, that you know New York City Health Department runs. And we're working with him to co-design a vaccine. People who are on the fence about the vaccine or just might need extra information about the vaccine. And the reason why he's working with us, you know, a volunteer group, is because most flyers are not designed to be used by community groups. They are incredibly wordy, they're presumptuous, they're judgmental. If you're, you know, if you're on the fence, which is this is the term that you know Odellis, one of our volunteers, came up with that she runs outreach at Rockefeller University, um, is that is that if you're on the fence, you're labeled as like problematic, you know, like what's wrong with you? You don't like, you're not taking the vaccine and like improving, you know, improving immunity. And it's like, no, these are just like, you know, legitimate questions that people have because there's been like no communication from anybody about the vaccine. It's just like, oh, like all of a sudden we have it, go take it, you know, which is incredible. The science is incredible that it was made and that we could build on, you know, 30 plus years of vaccine, you know, uh, research. But we still have to be able to explain to people, especially explain to people who have very legitimate reasons for having, you know, mistrust or just basic questions about it. And so we worked with him to and his uh, his his staff to design a flyer that would work for their context and for community groups to fill out. So we're doing things like that. And then we're working with labor organizations to pass policy. This is the real long term change that's needed is that we have no policy that's enforceable for indoor air ventilation. If you think about it, it's crazy. We spend so much of our lives indoors and especially workers who have no choice, essential workers who have to go into spaces. The air you breathe, like, you know, Paula Oseski, who's one of our program, who was our program officer Sloan says, we have, we have rules and regulations on you know, drinking, cleaning water, eating, you know, food that's not going to make us sick. We have nothing on air. And you know who this impacts the most? It's, you know, usually low income communities or people of color who live in zip codes that have higher pollution rates where they aren't being taken care of and this isn't being addressed. And now it's essential workers who are in indoor environments where, you know, you don't have the right level of oxygen um, exchange levels and carbon monoxide monitoring um, and now on top of it, COVID, because it spreads through the air. And so our whole thing is to work with labor organizations like Jobs of Justice and Kosh um, to, and even in New York State, we're working with the New York Heroes Act. And we just actually, um, New York Heroes Act just passed a legislation today. So we're really excited. It just has to be signed um, by the governor now, but it's the first essential worker um, bill of rights. And we were able to support them in getting in the right kind of policy language around air ventilation to make sure it's enforceable also. And we did that because we have scientists who are our advisors and we have great communication designers and hyperlocal organizers who've been building these, you know, guides. Like, we, for example, you know, we, um, the health, our advisor, Dr. Lupita Montoya, worked with the Healthy Nail Salon Association of um, California, the nails and she worked with them to create a guide. It wasn't the government who came in. It's like all these amazing people have come together to volunteer um, the science of it, the sci their science knowledge, but working with community orgs so that it works for their perspective. And this is what we need to see more of. We should see the CDC and our government funding more kind of collaborations like this. Um, there's one project that's really exciting that I've been keeping an eye on, and it's um, by Janine Abrams had a fair count. Fair count's been, you know, that was founded by Stacey Abrams out in Georgia, and they have a program that's like pairing scientists with, you know, community organizers. These kind of, I think these kind of programs are really the future where it's like creating these kind of pairings to solve problems together, not coming from top down. Do you see any of that happening in tech? I mean, for all the discussion of participatory design, blah, 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 I don't, I don't really see a lot of that coming down the pipe, but um, maybe through your experience, are you? 
Khadija, we have to make that happen. <laughs> I want to see more of that happen. You introduced me to an organization called Our Data Bodies that I think is doing incredible work. Um, but we we need to see more and we need to see more sustained efforts that are um, going to be scalable. Scalable, not meaning like it's got to scale into other cities, but it's like what I mean by scalable is like it's actually just like sustained and it's going. And so um, we want to see more orgs like that. But no, I don't think I don't think we see enough because you know why? Like labor organizing and tech have been very far from each other. And I think this is why I'm really excited by the work that Emidiar is starting to fund, which is, you know, um, Logic School is something um, that is doing an online activism class to teach remote workers, um, to teach, you know, tech workers how to remake their companies like from below. And that's like, this is this is incredible work. And so Xiaowei Wang is the creative director of Logic Magazine, but she created this um, this whole program just to fund, um, just to teach tech workers. Because like, why is that program needed? Because there are really well-meaning people who work in tech who are clearly, who know that there is a problem, but uh, because they don't have a labor organizing background, because they don't know how to do community activism work, they don't understand key things about organizing, which is like coalition building, solidarity, not not going into solutionizing and not um, centering yourself, you know, building with other people. Um, and so she there and tech has a big problem of thinking like we're going to solve, like you know, like Facebook's like we're going to connect the world. And that's like beautiful and gorgeous where it's like, no, really, you just created a large surveillance um, platform. And every that's like the story of tech, right? Like every it's, there's a lot of um, myth selling, magic selling. How are you thinking about data in the context of public health? I mean, like as part of the world that we live in and like when we're thinking about health and safety is mm. living in the surveillance state, um, although that vocabulary also feels very insufficient. So I'm yeah. just curious about um, maybe if you could talk a little more about like data as personhood and how you're Ooh. conceptualizing this as like a collective and not just an individual problem. Yes, my favorite topic <laughs> pre-COVID, this is all I would talk about, but now there's like, I don't get to pay enough attention to my favorite topic, which is personal data. Um, I am on a mission really to make sure that people understand that they have control over their data and that the data is theirs. This runs counter to everything that we've been told by big tech, which is that you use our platform, it's free, and in return, we use your data, we sell it. This is the basic business model of Facebook, of Google, of, you know, even um, stock trading apps like Robinhood. And this is a really big problem. And we're finding out that, you know, uh, when people don't have control of their data, then um, they can, it can be misinterpreted. Um, it actually affects their lives and their livelihood. We see this mostly uh, with, in particular, people who are most marginalized because the most privileged will be able to control their data. Um, so what I've been watch looking at is a lot of writing a lot about is facial recognition programs and how that it miscategorizes or it mislabels and it doesn't even correctly attribute identity to the faces that they are, you know, intaking into the machine. It just so happens to be mostly black men and black people. And because of historical racism and all of that, um, you have a lot of a growing number of incidences around the country um, where black men are being uh, wrongly accused of crimes due to facial recognition programs. And what I think this is, this isn't, you know, people, a lot of people are framing this as like an issue around privacy that, you know, um, you own your, you should have control of your data. So this is a privacy issue that their privacy was violated. 
But I think the framework of privacy is actually part of the problem. It's like we're chasing after the wrong thing. And I think it's partially because we just don't have an evolved, we haven't evolved our language to catch up that the issue is not with privacy. You know, it was actually um, when, when, for example, you're, you're mislabeled by a machine by that you committed a crime and you get arrested. It's not just your privacy has been violated. Your entire personhood has been violated. Your personhood is the qualities that make you a person and your ability, your agency, it's self-determination. That's what personhood is. And for so many centuries, we have seen through history that there are always fights to even, that personhood is not automatic. You know, this is why I love the episode y'all did with Josh Bennett and his work is he does that, he kind of does that deep analysis of like, you know, what happens when in my history where our people were not considered persons, you know, people. And so personhood is not automatic. It is, it has to be, we have to have a language for it and a structure as a society to acknowledge who are people. And right now, I think we have leftover stuff from racism um, and sexism that means that a lot of the things we never figured out in the analog world of what makes a person a person, you know, for so long, Black people were not considered people. They were considered animals, tradable objects. Uh, they did not have the agency determine their future. Is that that all that all that stuff that we never figured out in like in the analog world is now ported over into a digital world. And that's showing up in all these ways. And it's showing up in particular right now around the mislabeling of, um, around mis facial recognition, but you see it in all kinds of software. That's like, you know, um, ProPublica's work and understanding bail, automated bail assignments and how, you know, white people, even if you commit the same crime or even if there's no crime, it's just like white people are always given less bail. And black people are given um, are are put at a higher risk score, and this is because all the stuff we never figured out in the analog world is now just ported over digitally, and we're and we treat it though. And the biggest lies we tell ourselves we're being more efficient, we're you know it's well-meaning people who are being like, well, algorithms make it make it easier for us to do things. So if we're taking the way the you know rote work for humans. But in fact, it's actually destroying the personhood of people who have already tried to fight long for it. And so I really want to expand our language around when it comes to, um, you know, racism and sexism and ableism, all the stuff being embedded into algorithms and into our digital lives that we now live out a digital humanity is that it's not just our privacy being violated, it is our personhood. It would be so much easier to tackle if it was just a privacy issue of like, oh, my data was leaked or, um, you know, my, I mean, I'm not saying those are small issues. I'm saying they're big, you know, privacy is a big thing to tackle, but I want us to, to stay focused on the real issue, which is personhood. Facebook and Google would love to reduce it just to privacy. You know, Facebook has um, a whole um, campaign against Apple saying that Apple's new, um, you know, advertising requirements actually violate privacy. They ha there's like, it's, it's, it's so crazy. I feel like we're living in a 1984 novel, you know, where Google and Facebook are now fighting for the privacy of Americans. It's like they've lashed onto privacy and they're now twisting it and using it again, you know, saying like, you want privacy, we support privacy, where it's like, no, personhood is at risk. And that is what we need to fight for. Well, Facebook is definitely losing that war. I mean, like Facebook, Facebook right now, I think it's, that's a hard sell to be like, Facebook is really protecting your privacy. Even if Apple was taking, collecting more data than Facebook, I think that like their, their, their brand is less tarnished compared to Facebook at this point. 
I hope so. I hope so. You, I hope you're, I hope you're right, but they've got a lot of money and you know, like Facebook is, is used around the world. Like WhatsApp is used. I, I would never tell any of like, let's say like my friends who are like undocumented immigrants to stop using WhatsApp because that's their lifeline. So it's, it's complicated. Like I agree with you, but I, yeah, I think that's exactly the point. Right. And it does circle back maybe a little bit to to what we started talking about with with kind of hyper local groups, which I think Khadija and I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, kind of how our institutions get eroded and the fact that mm. the most accessible tools for doing something like hyper local organizing all seem to be within, you know, big tech companies, whether that's like Google Docs or Facebook or whatever you might be using to kind of get a group of people together. Um, does this worry you at all? I mean, <laughs> I mean, also in the China context as well. I mean, look, I think that it's much, We, if you want to be like changing the system, you have two choices. You can either do it outside the system and be like, well, fuck this, I'm leaving and we're going to do it another way. I'm going to build a new platform. Like you can be a new app, whatever it is you want to do. You know, you'd be like, we're not using it. Or you can make change within the existing system and bring people along with you. And I think that latter version of working in size systems is the much harder version. And I'm not judging anyone for doing the other version. I'm not saying don't do both. It's not a binary, you know? I think that we need to fight for new protocols. We need to, if we need to envision new platforms. But at the same time, I'm going to be organizing in ways that are where people are, and I'm not going to judge them. You know, this is the system we live in. And I think that's like the evolution of me as like, you know, an activist is I, I used to be much more like, you know, binary about like, we got to like bring down the system, but it's like, those are words. It's like, you have to meet people where they're at. If you actually want to take yourself out of the center and meet people where their understanding is at and really truly understand like, why do they use these apps? What do they use it for? And how are you going to talk to them about it? Then as an ethnographer, like you have to, you have to listen to those stories. And that's, I think you have to work in the system. And I think that's much harder. It's not simple. Um, I, I feel the same qualms about China, you know, but it's like all, all systems are terrible. You know, it's, it's, they all have their ugly sides, but the question is just like, how much are you, we have to all develop skills to negotiate these boundaries. And that's why I love, I love this podcast. And like, I think you all are amazing for the kind of like hard conversations you have because it's not a binary. Yeah. We, we spoke to uh, Cedric Durant last and, you know, we, we were kind of talking about this idea that you have some mental model, which is like in tech, we need more competition. I think what went unsaid there was there's also some push for more distributed system, more federated systems where there's less kind of centralized control. And he made the point that like these things being centralized makes them much easier to observe and understand. Um, I don't know that I had a question, but it was just an, an interesting point along the lines. You I, were I think that's a great point. Well, I was just going to add that I think I mean, I think there's different levels in different contexts. Like I think, like I'm working on one project right now that's half academics and half like people who didn't go to college at all and weren't even thinking about that. And definitely for the non-academics, they're like, hit me up on Messenger. And they were like, can we just do the meeting over Facebook Live? And I'm thinking in my head, like half the people <laughs> that we got on it are like, you know, like writing <laughs> op-eds right now about like down with Facebook. And so I think it's like when I hear you saying working within the system, I think like, the political, like on a political speech level, like, yeah, I'm not a reformist or whatever. And I like, I think the solution to me is like, we do need public space on the internet. And even that is like, what the hell does that mean when our state is so fucked? 
You know, it's not like would I would I really want to be in the hands of like the author of the Clinton crime bill over Zuckerberg, you know, to have like public technical infrastructures like not really. Right. But I think at the point where like Facebook is openly acknowledge, well, maybe not acknowledging, but it's like open information that they're recommending hate groups and like Holocaust denials and like supports of genocide you know, I don't think that people are ignorant and don't realize that their data isn't being stolen, is being stolen. I think that people are well aware and are trying to negotiate that because that's what they have access to. And this is how they could keep in touch with each other. But at the same time, we got to build some other shit. I, don't I, know. I, <laughs> I, I agree. And I think like, this is what, one of the reasons why I loved meeting you was I was like, damn, she's uncontrollable. Like she's wild, you know? <laughs> and this is the key lesson I think we all need to take away here is that we need to remain uncontrollable that a lot of these tech companies are hiring the best voices of our time and they're co-opting them. And when you start to depend on that kind of beautiful, big ass salary and our capitalist system, it just makes your voice a little quieter. Every time you want to say something, post a tweet, retweet something or say something to your boss or like stick up for someone, you start to think twice and then your voice becomes small and small. And I've seen this happen to the best minds of our time. You know, these companies are small. They go higher and they go, we have a policy position open. And that's, that's how it happens. And so I'm not saying that like, I haven't figured out, you know, um, but what my MO is of like, how do I, how do I navigate this space and use my um, privileges is to try as much as possible to remain uncontrollable. And that means not having any of my income come from one company. And that's what I loved about you, Khadija, because you're just like, you are just like, there's, it's very rare to meet someone who is intellectually, academically rigorous, but who doesn't, you know, I didn't know at the time that you weren't a tenure professor somewhere, but I was just like, I just love her voice. She's uncontrollable. I thought you were a tenure professor at Columbia. I didn't know. But like, it's important that I think like we have affiliations with multiple institutions and that we find our peoples, you know, because we have to navigate this together so that the big tech companies do not operate, do not capture our income, our bank accounts. That's the point in which they win. And we have to be very aware of, of their play. Laheim. I mean, down to the ungovernable. I'm all the way for that. Yeah, I think that's the, I don't know, read the loose. Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> we I'm have to de-territorialize this shit. <laughs> yes, the mycelial structures. Yes. yes, sedimentary infrastructure. I love it. <laughs> I'm like super obsessed. This is like my YouTube algorithm just plays like all these random, um, random like fandom videos to Deleuze and Guattari. Mm. <laughs> people, they just sound like both like they're on acid and they draw these like elaborate animations. As they're, wow. Like, Will like, you send me some of that? Yes, I, I will I, say, I'll link it in the show notes. Oh, please. Too, so I, I only listen, been listening to Manuel de Landa's work and he is, he's one of my best favorite interpreters of um, Deleuze, but he's usually high. And so those are the only kind of videos <laughs> I'm getting. I want to see what you're picking up on. <laughs> um, is there, you know, actually on that note, like our wrap up ceremony is, is there anything that you're watching, reading, listening to that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, there, I have been in conversation with Barbara Smith, who created the whole entire field of study and the concept of black feminism. And I found it to be so incredible to return to her work. Um, I found her work because I started to donate to her sharing her caring circle because she's worked all her life. She, you know, co-founded the Kambahi um, collective and the Kambahi River Collective is, you know, based off of Harriet Tubman, um, the, her work. 
And she is incredible because she never had a pension because of the work that she did. And so I've been reading about it because it just like reminds me that like it's, you know, it's like that phrase like history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. But it's like all of this work that we're doing is possible because we've had elders who have been through this. And she's the one who really started the work around intersectionality, um, you know, part of um, the collective's. Um, of manifesto was that it's not just about race. You can't just organize about racial issues. It is about sexism. It is about capitalism. It's about, you know, destruction of labor rights. Like all of these things we have to work together on the intersectionalism, all the stuff. And so I love her work. I think that her book, um, so her book, now that you're not, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. And it is a retrospective of her work is 40 years of movement building with Barbara Smith. And I just really love her because like not everyone knows her name, but she's someone who's like been there invisible, like behind the scenes, oftentimes invisible because she wasn't trying to get, you know, seen, but she founded, you know, the Kitchen Table Press with Audre Lorde and like so many uh, authors of color from Toni Morrison to Alice Walker to Amy Tan have come out of that press that she started, you know, so many voices that we know now. And so I think her carrying um, circle is incredible. I think everyone should support it. She's got a Patreon account. And so I'm excited for you all to click on it in the show notes. We got to take care of our elders, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and everything that we're doing with Asian American organizing didn't come out of nowhere. It came because of many leaders like Barbara Smith or Grace Lee Boggs who've come before us to lay the groundwork. Thank you. That's like actually the most perfect recommendation because I'm seeing a lot of uh CS mm. papers with Combahee River and the citations and, the bare, and a lack of clarity of anyone is reading the Combahee River yes. um, and knows the difference between the different members and like other political movements. I feel like somebody yeah. just like there's some cliff note citation practices going on here. So I think that's a fantastic recommendation. And I just want to say, yay, thank you so much. I'm so glad that I, I that I caught you tonight and I'm thank you for coming on to the show. No, thank you for having this. I think we ended on a great note to talk, you know, about someone who's always reminded us to not have single issue organizing. And that's really going to be the secret of our times to get, get us through this rough few decades ahead of us is these issues are not single issues that we have to resolve. They're multi-issues and that's why we got to work together. And I'm glad you all exist for that purpose. Well, thank you. This is Trisha Wong and we're on the We Be Ima Well, you are Trisha Wong and we're on the We Be Imagining podcast. <laughs> I am Trisha Wong. <laughs> <laughs> and who are you? Who are y'all? <laughs> Who's the real Trisha Wong? <laughs> it's been a long evening. Um, and this is <laughs> one, one word at a time. We'll get through this. <laughs> Help her out, help her out. Just say it for all her. Right, all right, take 17. Um, this is Jay Khadija Abdurakman. We're on the We Be Imagining podcast. Check out our Patreon, which will be in the show notes. And also follow us at We Be Imagining and on Twitter and on Instagram. Thank you so much, y'all. Oh, write us at webeimagining at gmail.com. That's it.